Hi everyone and welcome to the Palmer podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. It's really great to have you all here again. Um, and I'm, uh, we've got a new guest on the show today, which is great. I love having new guests on the show. It's always, always uh, really fun and really interesting. And today uh, is a guy that I met on Twitter a few months ago. Um, he's a writer. He is a lecturer as well. And uh, he's got a really interesting story. So uh, welcome to the show, Luke Wilson. Thank you so much, James. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Yeah, it's really great to have you have you on. And um, we connected a few months ago and uh, on Twitter and uh, got to know each other a bit. And yeah, um, I'm really honoured to be able to share your story today. So um, just tell us, a, just kind of before we get into your story, just tell us a bit about you. Yeah, so I am finishing my PhD. I'm also, like you said, a sessional lecturer uh, here where I live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I mostly write about uh, the Holocaust, but increasingly I've been writing uh, about conversion therapy in the context of Liberty University, which is where I underwent conversion therapy for four years during my undergrad. So from 2008 till 2012, I underwent uh, conversion therapy. And for those folks out there who don't know what conversion therapy is, it's the attempt to change one's sexual orientation and or gender identity and or expression. And for me as a gay man, uh, though at the time when I was undergoing conversion therapy, uh, I wouldn't have identified as gay. Uh, because of course, you know, within the evangelical imagination, there are a lot of mental gymnastics that one must do in order to uh, identify oneself as a, a heterosexual person, quote unquote, struggling with same-sex attraction, which is precisely how I identified. Um, but since uh, graduating from Liberty, I have begun, or I began, should I say, uh, the uh, slow and difficult process of de religious deconstruction. Um, and in part, my, my sexuality informed that, that deconstruction, but also my studies specifically of the Holocaust uh, also shaped uh, that religious deconstruction. And I am now, uh, I now identify as an ex-evangelical. Fantastic. Thanks for that. That's a really, that's a brilliant introduction. It really is. Um, there's so much in there that um, we can unpack. Uh, yeah, I mean... Yeah, <laughs> from you know, obviously the experience of conversion therapy to deconstructing because of an understanding of the Holocaust. That's a really both of those are really interesting um, parts of your story. And so, tell us a bit. I mean, I guess it's better to tell it in chronological order. So, how did how did kind of how did what was your experience of or your journey into, I guess, conversion therapy and then kind of out of it as well. And and sure. what impact did it have on you? Yeah, so I I was born and raised in Toronto. Uh, I was not, I wouldn't say that I was raised in a religious home. My mom was in many ways haunted by her Baptist demons <laughs> from when she grew up. My dad was an agnostic. Uh, but I became religious in grade nines so when I entered into high school. And I think this was in large part because I'm the youngest of five and my older siblings all went to church much longer than I did. Um, at a certain point, my family who would go to church on and off uh, just stopped going to church altogether. And I think for me as a young kid, 
you know, in middle school and, you know, elementary school, I thought that I was missing out in some way, shape or form on, on church and religion and God and Jesus. And so I decided that when I was going into high school or probably when I was in high school, it was a grade nine, I decided that I was going to go back to church. I was going to, you know, get involved with the youth group um, because at that point I had become uh, interested in the, the debate surrounding creation versus evolution. And so that sort of catalyzed an interest or, a, a you know, a reanimated my interest in God and faith and spirituality. Um, and I decided that I'd go to the church that I went to for four years, which from grade nine to grade 12, I went to Forward Baptist Church, which is an uh, fellowship evangelical Baptist church, i.e. Uh, a very conservative church. And it was there that I got plugged into the youth group, got plugged into the church, and I sort of dove into it headlong and was fascinated by anything Christian culture related. And I, you know, uh, was, you know, again, a youth sort of like, what was it called? The youth advisory board. I was on the youth advisory board. I was uh, leading a group at my high school that, that was called the philosophy club because we weren't allowed to have a Christian club. So I called it the philosophy club and then just talked about the philosophy of Jesus. Um, you know, and, and I was really a zealot for, for Christ. And, uh, that led me of course to Liberty. Uh, my uncle actually was the national recruiter for Liberty in Canada. And for those who don't know Liberty, Liberty is the largest evangelical or fundamentalist university in the world. Uh, it has over 15,000 students on campus and over 100,000 stu students online. Uh, and it's found, it was founded by the late Jerry Falwell Sr., uh, who was the, also the co-founder of The Moral Majority. And I went down on a trip to visit the campus, not because I wanted to go there, because I was very much raised on a strict diet of anti-American sentiment <laughs> growing up. My parents, specifically my dad, were uh, was not a fan of the, the U.S. And so... I was like, I don't want to go to study in this, you know, I don't want to study in, in Virginia of all places. But my uncle was like, no, no, you know, you should come down and, and take a take a look at the school. Just have a fun free weekend in Virginia. So I did. And when I got there, I, I as a young uh, evangelical, I fell in love with the place. I thought it was so cool and so uh, big. Everything Amer in America is bigger, right? It's all, you know, larger yeah. than life. And so yeah. that big college experience, the big campus, the shiny, you know, squeaky students, I thought, my gosh, this is the place for me. And in no small part did I think that, um, uh, should I say, a main, I should say, main motivating factor for uh, going there on top of it just being this big Christian campus was that it had a conversion therapy program. And I knew that because they had uh, ads for conversion therapy, though they didn't identify it as such. They identified it as, you know, are you struggling with same-sex attraction? The phrase that's commonly used in evangelical circles. And so I uh, was like, yes, that is I. And so I uh, wrote the conversion therapist's name down. And, you know, when I eventually got to Liberty, I, I met with that conversion therapist. His name is Dane Emmerich. And he just recently retired from Liberty, thankfully, though, uh, if my, uh, my what's the word, if my inklings are, 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 give, are, are accurate, uh, there are other people who have taken his place or had already taken his place on his way out, um, who are practicing conversion therapy at Liberty. And so um, so nonetheless, uh, that's what led me to, to Liberty and, um, uh, that's what led me to conversion therapy specifically. Yeah. Interesting stuff. It's interesting that a lot of people, a lot of people brought up in evangelicalism and we get kind of drawn in to these communities and these places and it convinces us that we need these, these things like conversion therapy and 
that they're right somehow they're morally right and yeah i mean i i um i seen that you've probably heard of this movie but um there's a movie called boy erased mm-hmm. um, which is really a true story of someone going into conversion therapy um and their experiences and um, how they survived it uh, um, and that that was very when i saw that movie i was i was deeply moved um because i i'd heard of conversion therapy but i'd never actually seen a story about it i didn't know exactly what it was like and um uh, to see that movie was quite powerful for me like you know just how bad this this stuff is um yeah yeah, the, the film Boy Erased, which is based on Garrett Conley's uh, memoir of the same name, uh, it's a phenomenal uh, depiction of, of conversion therapy. And I should say that with that film, for any folks out there who have seen it, um, again, accurate, true story for Garrett's experiences, uh, but it's one of many experiences, right? There are some people who would uh, say that their stories were not as uh, sort of uh, intense in some ways, right? And I would be one of those people in the sense that I'm not to say that my experience was good because it <laughs> obviously wasn't. Um, but what you see in the film is that you see this really um, strong emphasis on physical performance in the form of like playing, like they're all playing sports together. They're forced to do these like calisthenics and all this kind of stuff. And they're yelled at. And there's this almost like a military boot camp vibe at that conversion therapy center. And again, that's a lot of people's experiences. That wasn't mine. Um, my experience was, um, again, not I'm, not, I'm not in any way trying to say that my experience was not, or that was good, or it wasn't, you know, uh, uh, it wasn't bad. In fact, my experience was emphatically bad. It was, uh, it messed me up for a very long time. Um, but what I would say is that the conversion therapist at Liberty, Dane Emmerich, um, it was this, it was this insidious, quote unquote, kindness that he had. And I've talked to a number of, of other folks who went through conversion therapy and have since come out of the closet uh, from Liberty, and they identify something similar, that Pastor Dane, he was this sort of grandfatherly type. He was someone who seemed very supportive and loving and uh, you know, was offering us a, a space that wasn't really offered in many other evangelical spaces, and that was a space to actually talk about our, our, our quote-unquote same-sex attractions. Of course, though, his love or kindness or compassion, whatever you want to call it, uh, was in fact again insidiously lacking. It was you know very much compartmentalizing us into two separate sort of uh, uh, I guess compartments. But you know one being the good part of us, the everything that was not gay or queer, uh, and then the gay part, and saying that that was bad and that was wrong. And so he had this way of guilting us into uh, feeling you know bad about what we had done and, and guilting us making us feel like oh that was a bad thing that I did here or here or here or when I had this thought or when I had this thought um, these are you know bad and you shouldn't be doing this of course that guilt over time leads to shame and that shame over time leads to self-hatred um, and it builds up and builds up and builds up uh, for a lot of folks um, but again like you said James it, if boy raced is phenomenal um, but it's one of many experiences. Um, and there are, of course, other experiences beyond just those two that I just, you know, with both the film and my experience. Um, and I think of particularly Sam Brinton from The Trevor Project. Uh, they have a number of videos online on YouTube uh, where they describe their experiences and their experiences uh, sound just horrifying, um, like most experiences of conversion therapy. But again, uh, a multiplicity of experiences, but all um, negative and, and death dealing in their own ways. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, what was what was the time? What was the period during that process 
and that experience where you where you began to feel a bit uncomfortable and realize this might not be healthy um, or ethical um, yeah. yeah so I so I was at Liberty from 2008 until 2012 and when I was there again I was there all four I was in conversion therapy all four years and it wasn't till I left that I started to realize how bad it really was because of course you know, for those of us who were in the program, whether it had been one-on-one counseling or group counseling, and I was in both, but only only I only went to the group once the rest of the time I, I was in one-on-one counseling with Dane. And, you know, when I was in it, when I was there, when I was at Liberty, I did not think that it was bad. I did not think that, you know, what was happening to me was, uh, was reprimandable. Um, if anything, I thought that I was bad. I thought that I had been doing, you know, you know, uh, sinful things. And I was, uh, in a lot of ways screwed up or messed up because of being quote unquote, same sex attracted. And it was when I got to grad school that I started to realize, oh shoot, what happened to me was not normal. And I think for me, when I was in evangelicalism, I was ashamed to tell anyone that I was gay. I was, I, I didn't, you know, broadcast that I was going to conversion therapy. It was very secretive. Um, but I nonetheless didn't think that what I was doing was abnormal. In fact, I thought it was the good or the right thing to do. But it was when I started interacting with folks who weren't religious and folks at, you know, a secular uh, university here in Ontario, which I went to McMaster, it was there that I, I started, you know, rubbing shoulders with people who identified what happened to me as conversion therapy. They're like, wait a second, you went through conversion therapy? And I was like, yes, <laughs> I guess so. Um, and it was when they were seeing their reactions, I started to think, hmm, what happened to me maybe wasn't all that okay. And by the time I got, I went back to the States um, for, for the rest of my grad school. And when I was in Nashville, I was at Vanderbilt. And it was there that I had a lot of conversations with people who were essentially pointing out how crazy what happened to me was. And again, it was in throughout these few years of of my master's programs that I did that I was I was realizing, you know, that something what happened to me was not okay. What happened to me was not normal. In fact, it was abnormal and it was dangerous based on the research that I was or I was realizing this, you know, as I was doing research on the topic. And that again slowly led me to to read more and more and more about conversion therapy to the point now where although I'm not done my dissertation, which is about Holocaust literature. Uh, I'm doing a lot of research on gay conversion therapy, and in fact, much more than I am doing on my own dissertation. But nonetheless, uh, it was through conversations that I realized that something was wrong, and it was through conversations that led me to believe that um, uh, that what happened to me was not okay. And how did that begin to impact your own? I mean, how did that impact your spiritual journey and and your faith and? And also your sense of identity as well. Yeah, when it came to my spiritual journey, I think for me, it was not the conversion therapy that really was a central uh, preoccupation of mine. Um, It was much more just the very question of can a person who identifies as a Christian be a queer person? And of course, now the answer is like, obviously, (laughs) but at the time, uh, it was very much a a difficult question to grapple with because at the time I was very much still um, reading scripture, reading the Bible with a literalist interpretation. I believed that these were God's words, that God said whatever the Bible said through the hands of men. Um, And I thought to myself, well, who am I to question God? 
And it wasn't until I started to reevaluate my relationship to scripture and to think that the words themselves were not God's, but instead they were words about God, which doesn't make it any less sacred or holy. But, you know, at the time I was terrified that I was, you know, uh, putting my quote unquote interpretation onto scripture. Because oftentimes what evangelicals will say is that, you know, we don't have an interpretation. We're just saying what God says. And then everyone else, they have their interpretations. But realizing that evangelicals had an interpretation, then realizing that I had an interpretation really shaped how I started to understand scripture. And I began to realize that I did not think that these were God's words. I thought that, again, these were words about God. And at the time, that still uh, rendered scripture sacred for me. It wasn't that I thought any less of scripture. I just thought differently of scripture. And I think my sexuality very much put a wedge in my binary understanding of the world, right? That everything is right, wrong, good, evil, of the enemy, of God. And with that binary cosmology, my sexuality didn't fit neatly into that. And it pushed against this either or paradigm that I had adopted and had been given to me um, from evangelicalism. And I began to slowly deconstruct that binary world and think to myself, hmm, there's a whole lot more gray in this world than there is, you know, black and white. And in some ways, my sexuality, again, informed that. Um, in other ways, it was my understanding of scripture that uh, changed how I viewed sexuality. And then on top of all of that, it was my study in general, but specifically of Jewish uh, uh, literature, Holocaust literature, and more particularly, the literature of Elie Wiesel. And Elie Wiesel was a Holocaust survivor, one of the best known. Uh, he and Primo Levi, perhaps, are the two most uh, well-known uh, survivors. And Wiesel has written extensively, or he wrote extensively, he's passed away, um, but he wrote, you know, so many texts, whether it be novels or mem his memoir or, you know, a number of other, uh, you know, op-eds or whatnot. And in his writings, he's relentless with God. He does not back down and he really wrestles or grapples with God and says, God, like, let's reconcile. Let's figure this out. What happened during the Holocaust? Where were you? Give me some answers. And of course, he doesn't receive answers. Of course, it's a monologue. Um, however, his relentless pursuit of God really pushed me uh, to, to wrestle with God. Because up until that point, I didn't wrestle or grapple with God. Because of course, in the evangelical tradition, people don't wrestle with God very much, right? It's much more like blind acquiescence and, uh, you know, just uh, submitting to what God apparently has to say and not questioning it in a lot of ways. Um, and so when I saw this example of Elie Wiesel fighting and wrestling with God, I thought to myself, my gosh, maybe I can do something like that. Maybe I can actually question God and find out, you know, some answers. Needless to say, I didn't find out any answers. <laughs> God didn't really say all that much to me. However, um, it those writings certainly impacted my faith. And that's, that was the, the major catalyst uh, for why I, I, I really began de deconstructing. Of course, the deconstruction process had begun much earlier, again, and as it related to questions of sexuality and faith and reconciling the two. Um, but it was really my, my study of, of Holocaust literature that, that pushed me over the edge and pushed me away from evangelicalism because I knew that my world and my life did not fit comfortably or neatly within the very neat and quote unquote comfortable life of evangelicalism. But though, of course, it's only comfortable for those who actually align with what they uh, prescribe and what they believe. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's, that's really brings me on to what the next part of the conversation really is that, that, that study of, um, um, you know, of Holocaust, 
Holocaust survivors literature uh, and um, what, 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 what was the process of you encountering that and, and what did it do to you? What was, what was, the, what was the biggest thing that, that, that changed your perspective, and, perspective and, and really set you on that journey? So do you know that, what's that, the phrase, uh, too blessed to be stressed or hashtag blessed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> if, if, that. yeah, 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 that really cute phrase, right? <laughs> um, I, I, one day I was living in Florida, which was a very sad time. <laughs> I don't recommend it for anyone. Um, but I was living in Florida and someone had either like tweeted or I guess not tweeted because I, I don't even know if I was on Twitter at that point. Um, but had, you know, said something on social media and they said they were blessed and they said they were blessed because they got a coffee from Starbucks for free. And I sat there and again, maybe I'm a late bloomer. Maybe these are like things that people thought about much, much earlier, <laughs> but I had not. Um, but I saw, I sat there and I was like, wait a second, this person's arguing that they were blessed. And again, within the tradition that I, I come from, the faith tradition that I come from, um, you know, the idea of being blessed is an act of gift or bestowal from God onto people. And so I thought to myself, okay, so if God blessed that person, gave them that coffee, then that means that God is actively in other cases, not giving coffees or I don't know, safety or, you know, security or whatever gift God might be withholding. And I thought to myself, if that's the case, that's an active decision on God's part. If God's actively giving a coffee to one person, again, a coffee, like what an inconsequential, silly thing to be giving for in the first place. But if God's doing that over there and then not giving gifts elsewhere and not giving provision or again, safety, security, whatever to other people, then that means that God is acting sometimes and not acting other times. And again, both are active um, sort of uh, decisions on God's part. And I thought to myself, that's really messed up. <laughs> like if God isn't, you know, protecting or helping a lot of people in the world, then I don't necessarily know if I want to follow that God. And again, maybe this is something like the question of, you know, theodicy and like the reconciling a good God with evil are, you know, th these were questions that a lot of people dealt with much earlier. Um, but for me, for whatever reason, it wasn't. And it was when I was in Florida sitting there thinking about this, this gal who got a free coffee, attributing it to God, that really was the straw that broke the camel's back. And again, this was right at the time that I was reading a lot of Elie Fazel. This is right at the time when I was, you know, doing research for my dissertation. Um, and that really was troubling for me. And I think that that was perhaps one of the most pivotal moments, which again, it sounds so silly and in many ways it is silly. However, um, I think the silliness of the situation pointed out how silly my faith at the time was, right? How blindly I had been accepting so much for so long. And you're asking about the consequences. And to be honest, it was a very difficult process. Even before when I was reconciling my faith and my sexuality, this was a time into, you know, just like when I was eventually in Florida and, and really deconstructing my faith based on what I just said, both of these times were quite difficult because I thoroughly believed in, in evangelical doctrine, right? Like all of the doctrinal confessions that I had theretofore subscribed to were deeply held and were um, in a lot of ways very comforting for me because I think, again, within the evangelical imagination, the world is so easy. It's so set up, right? If in this binary opposition or in these binary oppositions, binary oppositions that, you know, the world is, is easy to decipher. We have all the answers, you know, according to evangelicals, right? That they think that, you know, everything is clear cut. There's no, again, gray, everything's black and white. And so when you live in a, a world like that, things feel comfortable, things feel safe and secure. 
and you don't really have to do as much intellectual or mental, you know, labor than if you were outside of that tradition. Because when you're outside of that tradition, you know, in some ways it's like, what do I grasp onto? Whereas within the evangelical imagination or tradition, mm-hmm. that they ha- think that they have scripture, they therefore have God and they know everything and what more do they need to know? And so when I lost that safety, when I lost that security and comfort of the evangelical uh, bubble or the evangelical sacred canopy, I felt so adrift. I felt so lost because I felt like I was unmoored. I thought to myself, what do I have to like sink my teeth into or what, you know, uh, uh, solid ground to use a biblical sort of uh, metaphor, I suppose, do I have on which to stand and base my life and my beliefs. And it was very, very difficult. It was very tough. And I, I, I mourned my faith uh, for a long time because I, I, I didn't want to give it up. And to be honest, to this day, I still miss having that sense. Uh, and I would argue a false sense of security and, and, and comfort, but it, it was something that was very alluring. And I think that's why a lot of people buy into evangelicalism um, because it's very easy to digest in a lot of ways, particularly if you fit the mold, if you're a straight white guy. Um, but on top of that, um, it's intellectually just not, um, uh, it's not difficult to, um, subscribe to, because it, again, if you have all the answers, then you feel like you're justified in everything you do and you feel again, safe, secure, and comfortable. Um, and so when I lost that, um, I, 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 again, I, I mourned it for a very long time and it was, it was quite difficult to, to go through that process. But ultimately I think, you know, uh, the examined life is much more, you know, it's, 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 it's worthy of living. Um, whereas the life I was living before was very uncritical and unexamined. And I don't think that I, um, was really, uh, living a full life because I think that I was in a lot of ways tied to, uh, false narratives and a lot of, um, uh, imaginative thinking. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I definitely resonate with the, with the whole kind of the grief of leaving that behind. Um, and I mean, deconstruction is a grieving process. Um, it's because you're leaving behind uh, an identity, you're mm-hmm. leaving behind community, you're leaving behind security, um, you know, certainty. Uh, you're leaving behind everything that's defined you for a, a period of your life. And no matter how much you know you need to leave and that it is good to leave and healthy to leave and liberating, there's also like a grieving because you're leaving something behind and it was and it meant something to you for a while. And and it was part and it defined you. And so when leaving behind there is that kind of emptiness a little bit and and you're right, you know, the, the, the certainty, religious certainty is very alluring and tempting. And, you know, um, yeah, it's, you know, and, and sometimes I've had moments where, like, I thought I wish I had something, some kind of certainty back in my life in terms of my belief and community because I, because it was so much easier then, <laughs> you know, but, but of course you don't go back, but, it, but, it, but but yeah, I mean, it is difficult to leave that behind, and it can be lonely. I've I've definitely experienced that myself, um, especially being single as well. And I realized the other day that a lot of basically my entire 
friendship network, apart from a few people, uh, was based around my church community. And when I left, they mostly disappeared, um, apart from a, you know a few select people. Um, they, they disappeared, and they weren't there for me anymore. And I thought these were people, my, these were my friends, and they would always be there no matter what. And they weren't. And so now it's kind of like starting over, and you know, in terms of my life and building friendships and and things. And that's that's difficult, but it but it is ultimately liberating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 one of those things where you think, yeah, what are the pros? Like, do I go back to something that I know isn't true, or do I? go elsewhere and obviously the answer is you know i go elsewhere but with going elsewhere like you said like you lose a number of people and of course there's that really cute you know phenomenon known as gaslighting where people (laughs) will say like i didn't stop talking to you like it's a two-way street you could have messaged me and it's like yeah i could have and i did actually however every time i did it was a one-word answer or you know like a like as opposed to an actual response on social media because you know a lot of my christian friends don't live in toronto and so Whereas, you know, and again, like before you had a lot of, you know, uh, people who would comment on your things or you would chat with or you'd call or make time to visit whenever, you know, you'd go to that town or that city and that dried up, that disappeared for so many people. And it's just wild when you realize that your relationship with those people was dependent upon and necessitated a faith confession. And if you think about that with anyone else, like what other groups of people, you know, in my life now would 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 necessitate that I, I i believe in one certain thing and if i don't well goodbye that's it's such a, a conditional love it's such a uh, an empty and hollow love that is in no ways at this point appealing right and i and I, it's funny when when evangelicals you can tell that they're they're upset that you know you've left the faith and it's like yeah but you did literally nothing to to try to get me back and you know Again, I'm never going back. And I have no desire to go back. Um, but it is very telling um, how many friends you lose because you no longer believe and how uh, tethered they are to their faith that um, that you you leaving the faith would would call into question whether or not you guys were actually friends. Yeah, it is quite scary, really. And... Uh... ironically it's completely against the whole heart of jesus i guess jesus was all about unconditional love and acceptance and inclusion and um yeah and he said like if you only love those who love you what credit is that to you and i'm like well they're not practicing any of those things so (laughs) like people trying to follow him and they're not actually practicing what he lived and and said like that doesn't make any sense it's like you know it's just it's just are you really following him at all like oh. i think <laughs> what that's what you call thing? hypocrisy james <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely yeah oh, yeah obviously <laughs> um it's just hard to think about think of it with for people that i you know that i was close to for so long and that i i mean i know they they deep down good people I, i'd still want to believe that but it um, I still, I still want to believe it's the, it's, well, it's the belief system and and you know the spiritual abuse and everything that is controlling them rather than actually being aware of it. But nevertheless, the outcome is the same, and that it, in that it, in, that it, in that it is hurtful uh, and abusive and it's cult-like behaviour. Um, like if you 
just like right now you're not now you don't believe what i do and now you don't come to our little group and we're not going to be friends with you anymore and i'm like yeah it's just yeah that that's not loving behavior <laughs> yeah um, it's it's an us versus them and i think that when you construct your world as us versus them insider versus outsider um it's it's just such a an exclusionary way of being and and operating and i i just it's it's curious to me that so many evangelicals are so confused why so many people a leave the church then b why no one wants to be a part of the church and it's like that's precisely not precisely why that's that's in part why right that's a big reason why and there's there should be no surprise because that doesn't seem all that you know appealing and it's not good pr on their part mm, absolutely yeah absolutely there's this is fundamental thing that they just don't get and i don't want to be create another them enough thing you know but it's um there are people there are uh there are people who are part of those communities and those systems that they just don't they just don't see and i've been in them so i get it right um i was in them once so i was part of that once but i get it but it's uh when you're out of it it's like whoa goodness me this is like way worse than i thought um and and i think for i think for a lot of evangelicals what's scary or you know when when people do leave the faith tradition that's scary and i think for them it troubles this once saved always saved narrative but on top of that that they see someone who was previously quote unquote on fire for god and then left and they think to themselves well what in the world like how could you know this person or this person leave after you know being someone who evangelized people who someone who brought people to christ someone who you know did whatever and I think that seeing someone renounce their faith or seeing someone leave the church is 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 a threat to their faith, or at least they perceive it as a threat or an affront to their faith. Um, and I think it's scary. Yeah, that's right. It is. I think it's that. And I think also there's my suspicion is that a lot of them who have doubts themselves and have questions and are curious but are afraid to acknowledge it. And, and when people leave, that brings that to the surface. Um, and they don't want to deal with it, and they don't want to confront it. They want to hide behind certainty. So they maybe become more aggressive in terms of defending what they believe and, in, uh, and against people who are leaving and against people who don't believe it because they're actually having doubts about it because they're trying to convince themselves as much as anybody else. Uh, and, you know, it's often like the people who argue the hardest, you know, it's like uh, who get the most upset. Well, yeah, maybe maybe that struck a nerve with you as well. Like, But you don't want to admit it when you're in there because, like, you're you know, almost like scared of admitting it because that means, oh, God, if I lose my faith, I might go to hell, you know. Um, and, yeah, it, it's fascinating, to be honest. But, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that there's also just even like, you know, the more people who agree with me, the better. And then when they start to see this, like, really um, sizable exodus from the church, it's like, wait a second, maybe, maybe what I have believed is, is, is not necessarily true. And like you're saying, like, they do have doubts, and they don't want those doubts to become 
clear and they're less clear when there are more people who believe. But again, the more and more people who leave the church, the more and more that is a threat to that sort of plausibility structure that, that, you know, sacred canopy. And it starts to have, you know, there are holes that are being poked in it and revealed to them. Those holes are being revealed to them uh, that really are threatening and scary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so where is your, your spiritual journey taking you now? Where, where did it go after you kind of began that process of deconstruction and where has it taken you? Yeah, that's a, it's a question that I normally don't even like the answer to that. I don't even know if I, I think about too, too much at this point. Um, I am, I, I used to always say that like everyone, everyone has faith, everyone has faith in something. And now I'm not so sure that I do, but maybe I do. Maybe I'm just deceiving myself and, and think that, you know, I'm a faithless person, but I, I don't really have too many spiritual practices at this point. I think in a lot of ways, the, the practices that, that, um, superseded my spiritual practices are very much academic and social. Um, I'm a very, very social person, and maybe that's why I shouldn't be an academic <laughs> because I like being around people a lot, um, and I like being in conversation and in dialogue with people, and that's probably why I love teaching. But um, you know, I think that for me, I, I I don't have the same obviously religious community. I'm not a part of any church or you know parachurch organization. Um, instead, I'm just a very social person who likes to see and you know be around a lot of people. Um, when it comes to academia, I oftentimes say that academia saved my life. It's it, it really is that which showed me um, uh, a lot of issues with religion, and again, a lot of issues that, with religion that specifically uh, connect to sexuality and gender. Um, but for me, when it comes to like a spiritual practice, I'm not even someone who does yoga. <laughs> I did yoga when I was in grade one, and I didn't like it, and so I haven't really come back. But you know, when it comes to spiritual practices, I don't really have many that are intentional. Um, I think if, if anything, it's more so having conversations with people that would be perhaps the, the, uh, the substitute or that, which, you know, fills that void that I, I, that was evacuated years ago. Um, you know, that, that what, what a lot of people, what does Augustine call it? The God shaped void or the God shaped hole in your, oh, in your yeah. and I, I, did, I don't have, Again, if I if I'm filling that quote unquote void, um, it's probably just with with social interaction and and people. That's fantastic. It's, yeah, I mean, there is no answer. There is no correct answer, is there for for our journeys? It, it, we, they're just our journeys, and we we go on them, and we go where we're going to go, and where curiosity leads us, and where they naturally are going to organically, you know, go and. Yeah, I'm kind of similar in some ways. And I don't, I have a spiritual community that I don't, um, that I still connect with. Um, but, but in the in the main, I don't have regular spiritual practices. I have, I'm I'm exploring my spirituality, and I'm reading, and I'm learning, and I'm um, I'm occasionally doing occasional spiritual practices. But but yeah, I know what you mean. It's um, it's just we are where we are. And it's, I guess it's about finding, it's trying to rediscover our identity and uh, outside of all of that. And yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting journey. So what is one thing that you've learned, 
one kind of core principle that you've learned on your journey that you would, one word of encouragement that you want to pass on to other people who are on a similar kind of journey? I would say it's okay to doubt. It's okay to not know the answers and to have that, that epistemic humility right? That you don't need to know everything and you don't need to prove it to anyone. You don't need to prove yourself or your faith to anyone. You don't need to prove your identity to anyone. I think for me, for a long time, my, my very identity, like me being a queer man was, was questioned. And I felt like I needed to offer some sort of apologia or some response or justification for why I thought it was okay to be a Christian and be gay. But ultimately, you don't owe that to anyone. At the same time, though, I would say that when I have conversations now with people who are quote unquote undecided about what they think about sexuality, I do take the time to offer, you know, uh, to have a conversation. And I do that because I think to myself, if I'm not going to do it, who will? Of course, again, a lot of people, when they have these conversations, uh, it brings up or dredges up a lot of really negative uh, uh, memories and feelings. And that's completely understandable. And again, that person does not owe anyone sort of a, a, an answer. Um, but at the same time, when people are in a good place, when they have thought through these things or they've, you know, worked through um, uh, or come to terms with a lot of their, you know, their baggage or their memories or their trauma or whatever, you know, uh, what, whatever they're dealing with, that it is... <sighs> I do see it as my responsibility to speak about these things. Again, I'm not saying it's everyone's, but I think that if not us, then who? Um, uh, and with that being said, it's again held in tension with that they don't owe it to anyone, but they do, but they don't. And maybe I shouldn't say they like that everyone else out there. I, I think about myself. Um, I do feel like I have a responsibility um, to, to speak about these things. But all that to say is that it's also okay, like I said, to not know who needs to have all the answers. And in some ways, uh, when you have all the answers, it's kind of boring. <laughs> but uh, I'd say just uh, have that epistemic humility. Know that a you don't you don't know everything, and b that you don't have to know everything, and that's fine. That's brilliant. I love that. Absolutely love that. Well, um, thank you, Luke, for coming on and sharing your story. It's it's really great to to hear from you and to and to hear that story. And I hope it's been encouraging for other people too. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I, uh, I really do appreciate it, and uh, I hope the same. Yeah, and where can people kind of connect with you online? Yeah, so I am on Instagram. I am, uh, what is my handle? At Luke Slam Dunk Wilson. And on Twitter, I'm at Wilson underscore F as in Frederick, W as in William. Fantastic. Great. Go give him a follow. Go give Luke a follow. He's fantastic. Really um, great to interact with and everything. So, yeah. Uh, thanks, Luke, for coming on. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah.